Good morning, everybody. I think perhaps that a quarter of our family, our church family, is either in Costa Rica, in Florida, or other warm places. I hope it rains all day where they are. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Got, got, you know, Ten Commandments, one of them says, you know, do not covet, but and I'm having a hard time with that this morning. But diving into the, um, the scripture that's before us, John chapter 18, verses 19 to 40, picking up where Ted left off uh, last week. Uh, Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken before Annas, one of the high priests. And this morning in the, uh, in the scripture, continues that story where he's, quite, he's questioned by Annas and Annas sends him to Caiaphas, another high priest. And in between that, we have Peter, who uh, denies Jesus Christ, just as Jesus predicted that he would. And then Jesus is sent on to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor for that area at that time. And there, the Jews petition Pontius, because you see, the Jews had authority within their own religion to administer their own law, but they didn't have within that law the ability under the Romans for capital punishment. And that's what they were seeking with Jesus. So they took him before Pontius Pilate, and and Pilate questions him. And there's three words that literally exploded off the page when you read these, and when I read them. And that's what I'm focusing this morning on, these three words. John chapter 18, verses 37 and 38 reads, and this is Pilate speaking to Jesus. You are a king, then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What is truth? Those words exploded off the page for me. And this morning, I want to take a look at those words, but put it into a context of a different kind of a question. What if somebody asked you the question, prove to me that the Bible is true. Prove to me that the Bible is accurate. Prove to me that the Bible is historically accurate. How can you do that? In today's world, We need to have the answers to those questions. In today's world, we have to be able to show that truth is not just something that's a feeling with inside of you. That truth is something that can be shown with concrete evidence. Because that's what the world is searching for today. And that's what the world has at their disposal. They've got this whole internet that's out there. And they're asking questions, and we have to have the answers for them. You know, it was a whole lot easier when I was younger. This is a rite of passage for a dad to say to his kids, you don't know how lucky you've got it. Back when I was a kid, I mean, my dad could have said to me, back when I was a kid, I had to walk to the proverbial school uphill both directions, three miles through three feet of snow. I can't say that today, but I can say back in my day, 
I had to get up off the couch and walk through nine feet of shag carpet to get to the TV to change the channel. It doesn't sound as daunting, but it was when you were a kid at my age. But this morning I'm looking through a lot of material that was provided in a book that, uh, and, and an author that Ted Bendel put me onto several years ago. Uh, the book is called Cold Case Christianity by Jim Wallace Warren. He's an interesting character. He was an atheist who decided to use his analytical and detective skills as a cold case homicide detective in the county of uh, Los Angeles to investigate. Is it reasonable for the Bible to be true? And it's interesting, as it happens with other people, this atheist became a Christian. And he's gone on to uh, write actually several books. But I didn't just stop with this. I decided if I'm going to take a look at this, I'm going to take on the attitude of the Bereans, as they're describing the book of Acts. And I'm not going to just take his word for it. But I'm going to look to other pieces of evidence and do they support what he claims. Is the Bible accurate? How do we know that the early slash late books were slash are accurate in their content? What I mean by that is, to us, the first manuscripts that we have were real early. But to somebody who lived a couple hundred years after Jesus walked this earth, they were becoming late already. Were they? Are they accurate? Depends on the time period you're in uh, to depend on what frame of mind you put yourself into. How do we know that these manuscripts and these books weren't corrupted intentionally or unintentionally? We don't even have the original Gospels. We don't have a copy of the very original four Gospels or the book of Acts. We don't even have a copy or a copy of a copy. In fact, the earliest copies of the New Testament manuscripts that we have date to at least a hundred years after they were first penned. and We don't have those originals. How do we know they're still accurate? Let's take a look at a timeline of events. Starting at 1 AD, Jesus makes his way into this world as a human. He's here for about 33 years, and he ministers, performs miracles, teaches, proves that he is indeed the Son of God. In AD 45 to 50, after Jesus' ascension to heaven, Mark writes his gospel. Now, Mark is not an eyewitness, but Mark records what the eyewitnesses says within that time period. Some historians place that gospel around A.D. 55 to 70. And then we have A.D. 53, 57. Some was around there. Luke writes the, the book of Acts. Again, some historians place that a little bit later in the uh, time frame. A.D. 50 to 57, the disciple Matthew writes his gospel. And Matthew is an eyewitness. He was one of Jesus' disciples. Pre-A.D. 70, the disciple John writes his gospel. Some historians date that around A.D. 90. But John, likewise, is an eyewitness. So we have the four gospels in the book of Acts that are all written within that first half of the century A.D., somewhere around that halfway point. The reason that I myself tend to believe in the earlier datings is because of what's not in the book of Acts and what's not in the Gospels. A.D. 63 to 65 is the, the death of James, the brother of Jesus. 
Peter and Paul. This was not recorded in the book of Acts. But the book of Acts does record the martyrdom of Stephen and James, the brother of John. These are all important apostles. These are all important figureheads in the early church. And it makes sense to me that if you're going to record the deaths of some, you're going to record the deaths of the others. Also, A.D. 67 to A.D. 70 is the siege of Jerusalem. See, at that time, people in Jerusalem rallied up against the oppressors from Rome. And they said, we're not going to take this anymore. Well, Rome had a different idea, and in fact, they sent soldiers, and they surrounded and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And it lasted around three years. And in fact, the famine within that city was so great by the end of those three years that when the Roman soldiers finally entered the city, there's historical claims that cannibalism was occurring because there was just nothing there to consume for food anymore. And then at the end of that siege, the temple was completely destroyed. And Jesus predicted that in the Gospels. Jesus predicted, he said to his disciples when they were at the temple, he says, you see this temple? There will come a time when not a stone will be left standing one on top of the other. And that happened. And to me that's significant in dating the Gospels in the book of Acts. Because if you were to write a a history or something about New York City or a biography about somebody from New York City, surely 9-11 would be included in that. And I believe it would be the same for this. So now we're starting to establish a bit of a timeline, a starting point that we can work with here in looking at the Gospels and are they accurate, are they authentic? Well, let's jump ahead. Let's jump ahead about 300 years to something called the Council of Laodicea. See, here's one of the first attempts at church leaders to get together and to come up with some cohesive um, group of uh, rules, a, a cohesive group of of guidelines that we should follow if we're going to, as a church, stay on the right track. Because there were heresies starting to sprout up here and there. There was straying away from what Jesus taught, starting to sprout up. And this council said, we've got to get together and we've got to figure this out. And they came up with 60 canons or rulings. Canon number 59 states that you cannot read anything but the approved manuscripts, writings, uh, scripture. And the 60th canon goes on to, 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 to create a list of what those are. And the interesting thing is that it's very close to the list of the New Testament that we have today. There was a few differences, but it's very close. And in fact, it's one of the first, if not the first, Bibles. Well, how do we know that they got it right? What proof do we have that the Council of Laodicea had accurate copies of what they had to work with at that time? What proof do we have that they selected the correct books, letters, manuscripts? Is there a custody of evidence? Is there a chain of custody of this evidence that can go right from the eyewitnesses right through to 363 AD when this council met? Looking back at our timeline, that's a huge time gap between the last two items. The temple's destroyed in A.D. 70. Then all of a sudden, 363 A.D., we've got a council of Laodicea convening. Well, I believe that there is a chain of evidence. And it lies with 
the disciples of the disciples of the disciples. See, Jesus wasn't the only one to have disciples. Disciples isn't something unique to Jesus. That's just a, a word describing somebody who's a student, somebody who's a follower of somebody else. Well, the apostles had disciples. In fact, John had a disciple called Ignatius. And Ignatius was a bishop in Antioch. He was a church leader. And we have seven copies of letters that remain today. We have seven of his manuscripts that can be authenticated to him. And within those seven, he quotes from Matthew, John, Luke, and several of Paul's letters. And this happens all around 110 AD. We're starting to stray away from the um, original eyewitnesses, but that makes sense if you're starting to, uh, to copy down what had happened in history. But John didn't have just one disciple. He had more. He had a disciple named Papias, about that same time period, but we have no, no um, copies, or we have no manuscripts from Papias. But we do have manuscripts from another disciple of John, somebody called Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop as well, another church leader. And we've got one letter of his that survives today. And within it, he quotes or he leads to Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, and ten epistles. These guys weren't just writing, hi, how are you, letters. They were writing church doctrine to uh, the churches that, that were under their control. But not just John had disciples, but John's disciples had disciples. And in fact, Ignatius and Polycarp had a disciple called Irenaeus. And Irenaeus, around the time period of 185 A.D., wrote a lot. And we have a lot of his writings that still survive today. And within, within which, he lists 24 New Testament books that he identifies as Scripture. Irenaeus had a disciple. He had a disciple called Hippolytus. Hippolytus, around 220 A.D., repeats a lot of what Irenaeus had to say, as well as listing those 24 New Testament books of Scripture. Now, unfortunately, Hippolytus got into trouble with the Roman church. He was exiled to the mines in Italy, and there he died. And that's where his trail ends. But wait, there's more. Just like those infomercials on TV. But wait, there's more. Because not only did John have disciples who had disciples, but Paul had disciples who had disciples. And take a look at, at that list. We've got, starting at 70 A.D., Linus, Clement, Averitus, Alexander, Sixtus, Telesphorus, Hygienus, Pius, Justin Martyr, not to be confused with Justin Bieber, and Tatian. And that list goes from 70 A.D. to 175 A.D. Now that's not as far as Polycarp. But now you've got to realize that we're starting to, we're starting to compile a big list and a big group of evidence, of manuscripts, something that we can compare to. But wait, there's more, because not only did John and Paul have disciples who had disciples, but Peter also had them. And here's Peter's list, a list of 11 of them, dating from A.D. 55. And notice who Peter's first disciple is? Mark, the fellow who wrote the book of Mark. And it goes all the way up to 335 A.D. Now we're just 30 years within that council of Laodicea. We're within the same generation. Now we've got a custody, a chain, of evidence going right from the eyewitnesses right to this first council. And you can compare all of that evidence that's put together and you can see, does it all match? Does it change? Does it break in any way? The interesting thing 
is that when you compare all this evidence, when you compile everything that they described about Jesus, who he was, what he did, how he did it, if you take only the disciples of the disciples' account of Jesus, if we didn't have those four Gospels in the book of Acts, if you only took their accounts, you would be left with a description of Jesus, who was a man who was born of a virgin, performed miracles, preached sermons, claimed to be God, was worshipped as God, was crucified, buried, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's exactly what's written in the Gospels. Well, could all this be a collusion? You know, you, you, you start looking on the internet, and people who are critical of the Bible, and who want to find ways to denounce it, they come up with things. The History Channel loves conspiracy theories. You know, I, I think they make their living on them sometimes. Well, could this be a conspiracy theory? Could this be a, con- a collusion? It'd be extremely difficult, because when all this was going on, these three apostles and their disciples were in three different parts of the known world. And that known world, even though it wasn't as big as our known world today, it was still huge by their standards. And this was all going on in Rome, Asia Minor, Africa. This is a huge expanse of territory. And they didn't have, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have FaceTime, they didn't have Skype, they didn't have texting. Sometimes I wish we didn't have texting. They didn't have cell phones, they didn't have a landline. They didn't even have a radio. There was no Canada Post. There wasn't even a Pony Express. In fact, if you wanted to send a letter to somebody, you had to find somebody going in that direction, and then you had to give it to them and hope they were going all the way, because if they weren't, then they had to find somebody to pass it on to. To send a letter from one end of that country or region to the other, it could take months, if not a year. It's pretty hard for all these people to get together and say, yeah, let's make up a story. Could they have lied about it? One or two people could continue a lie over a period of time. Hundreds, if not thousands of people. There's no reasonable way you can say that that could happen. Could it just be a coincidence? Could it just be a coincidence that all these descriptions just kind of match each other? Well, there are over 5,700 Greek manuscripts Pieces of writing, that's all a manuscript is, it's just a handwritten piece of something. There's over 5,700 of them that are available for us to look at. There's 34 complete New Testaments dating back to the 9th century. And there's a nearly complete New Testament that dates back to within 100, 150 years of when the events would have occurred. Can it be a coincidence? I don't think it could be a coincidence. Compare that to the writings that we have from ancient secular times. Homer was one of the um, um, best-known ancient authors that we have. His work is dated to around 700 BC. Uh, His most famous works are the Iliad and the Odyssey. Well, of the over 1,000 manuscripts and fragments that exist of the ancient dates that we have for Homer, the earliest one dates back to the 3rd century. That's a time span of 400 years between when he would have written and when that first manuscript happens. 300 of these manuscripts date to the 9th to the 15th century. Now we're over 1,000 years of difference, and there's not a lot compared to what we have with the New Testament to compare. So this timeline between some of these ancient writers is spread out much more, and there's holes in them. They don't have a chain 
of evidence. They don't have that custody of evidence that the New Testament has. And I'm only looking at the New Testament this morning. Take a look at Alexander the Great. One of the most well-known people from ancient history. There's not a lot of evidence or writing or manuscripts about him compared to the New Testament. But yet people have no problem accepting uh, the accounts of history that are out there about people like Alexander the Great. Why is that? Why is there that belief, unbelief? Belief in ancient historians for ancient people, but there's that unbelief when it comes to the New Testament and Jesus Christ. Why is it so easy for some people to believe in ancient history about secular characters, but not believe in the Jesus Christ and the events that surround him? You see, I, come, I, think, I believe it comes down to who these people were. It makes absolutely no difference in my life whether Alexander the Great even existed or not, whether the accounts of him are accurate or not. Whether he was there or not, I still get up in the morning, have a shower, have breakfast, go to work, come home, have supper, put my feet up on the couch, fall asleep, go to bed, do it all again, <laughs> do it all again the next day. But if Jesus Christ is real, if the New Testament is real, now I've got to decide, what do I do with Jesus Christ? And that's where the problem lies with so many people. And in fact, if the New Testament is true and accurate, then by extension, you've got to start thinking, well, you know, that means the Old Testament has to start being valid. Because Jesus quoted from the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. So if Jesus is true, by extension, you've got to start believing the Old Testament is true. And then, wait a minute, now we've got somebody who created the universe and the world. <clears throat> well, why is this important to know? Why is this important for us to know? You know? As I was saying earlier, the Internet has brought our world so close together, but it's also brought into our lives not only information, but misinformation. It's brought in opinions and philosophies and it's so easy to give your opinion on the Internet. And untold number of people are going to uh, take a look at it if they want. And you don't have to sub even substantiate it. It's not like if you're, if you're publishing a book, a history book, where you better get your facts right, or you better be able to argue your facts, because there are going to be people who are going to challenge you. But on the Internet, you don't have to worry about that. You just put them out there. That's all you have to do. Put out there some criticisms, some critiques. If we are not prepared to give an account of what we believe in the language of today, then we're missing an opportunity to witness to a growing segment within our society. If we can't answer our kids' questions, our grandkids' questions, our siblings' questions, our co-workers' questions, our neighbors' questions, they're going to look other places for those answers. And they're going to look to people who aren't necessarily interested in providing a balanced answer. Don't expect the schools to provide any information for our kids. Just for them to even mention that there is something called a Bible is a struggle for them today. We need to really have a fully equipped tool belt if we're going to be effective Christian workers in this 21st century. We've got to have all the right tools. This doesn't mean that everybody who comes to you is going to question the authenticity of the Bible. I never did. 
talking with my wife Carol. She never did. Um, it just wasn't an issue. But it is becoming more of an issue with a growing segment in our society. You can't pull a hammer out of your tool belt to drive a screw into a piece of wood. Trust me, it doesn't work. You've got to have a screwdriver. And if you don't have all of these tools at your disposal, you're missing out. Some people have brought up criticisms about the Bible with something called variances. Well, a variant or a variance is just simply that things don't jive when you go looking from one copy to another, or this copy or that copy. And in fact, in the um, portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, there is such a variance. I use the, um, uh, a student Bible that's in the NIV translation. And at the bottom, there's a note that says, with regards to John chapter 18, verse 24, that there's two possible wordings that the uh, translators can't agree 100% on, but they both, have, um, they both have some good reason to be there. Verse 24 reads, And then Annas sent him, still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Well, another option, and this isn't a translation option so much as this is, this is what the ancient manuscripts, there are some manuscripts that say one thing, some manuscripts that say then another. So some will say, then Annas sent him, and some will say, then Annas had him sent. And what we have to look at is don't get hung up on, yeah, there are variances so that the Bible can't be true because it's just a book of errors. But take a look at what do those variances do to the Bible? Do they actually change it? Well, just taking a look at this one. Whether or not Annas sent him or whether or not he had him sent, the fact still remains that Jesus was with Annas, he was questioned by Annas, and Annas wanted to, to send him to Caiaphas. So whether Annas sent him himself or he simply said to one of his, uh, his helpers, send Jesus to Caiaphas. The fact still remains Jesus still went to Caiaphas. It doesn't change anything in that account. There's a bigger variance that we looked at earlier in the book of John. Um, John chapter 8, the first few verses, is the account of the woman caught in adultery. And my Bible, not in the bottom of the notes, but it says just before these verses, it says that most reliable manuscripts don't record this event as happening. So now we've got to decide, what do we do with this? And this is what I love about the translators of the Bible. They didn't shy away from this. They didn't just leave it out because they couldn't make sense of it. They put it in there, but they said, you know, there's some options here, and you've got to reconcile with them yourself. But when you listen to theologians and historians talk about the account of the woman caught in adultery, whether or not that account is in there or not, it doesn't change who Jesus was. When you take a look at that account, he handled it the same way that he handled everything else that we have a record of. It's that same Jesus. So whether it's in there or not, it doesn't change who Jesus was, what he did, and how he did it. And when you look at the variances themselves, and what it does for the accuracy of the New Testament, of the over 150,000 variances in the Bible, and some people say that there are more variants in the New Testament than there are words, but of the more than 150,000 variants, 98% of those can be attributed to spelling mistakes, punctuation mistakes, grammatical errors. 98% of them. That does absolutely nothing, except 
um, stick out as a sore point in a, uh, uh, an English teacher's uh, uh, point of view. You, know, you can submit an essay to your English teacher, and it may have all of your facts straight, but she's going to put little red marks by those spelling mistakes, the punctuation, the grammar, but it doesn't change what went on. It doesn't change the eyewitness accounts. For the remaining few that have been um, um, pointed out, like the ones that we looked at this morning, they don't really change who Jesus was, what he did, and how he did it. And the nice thing is that we have so much information, so many manuscripts out there, that you can compare, and you can find out pretty quick what this person said about Jesus happening here. There's nothing else about it in the Bible, and it just doesn't jive with who he was. This is wrong. I think there's that evidence that's out there. But that's not all there is when it comes to proving that the Bible is true, historically accurate. There are hidden gems of science in there. Now, the Bible is not a scientific textbook, but I believe the Bible is scientifically accurate. The New Testament authors make it abundantly clear when a miracle happens, they portray it as a miracle. But there are scientific bits of information out there that were recorded that they couldn't explain back then, but they still recorded it, that we can explain today. The first scientific gem, and these are medical pieces of science, is something called psychogenic heteroterosis. It took me a long time to get comfortable with that word, and I don't know how doctors do it. But this comes from Luke chapter 22, verse 44, and a lot of you know about this verse. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And I've always thought, how can you have bloody sweat? Well, you know what you can there is a rare, and it's a very rare medical condition, and it's been documented that can happen. And what it is is when a person is under extreme duress, and when Jesus was praying here, he knew exactly what was coming. He was under extreme duress. That when that happens, that it's very rare, but some of the blood vessels near your sweat glands can actually burst from that stress. And that blood can uh, be mixed with your sweat and you could be sweating, literally, blood. The interesting thing here is that the documented cases, almost all of them, occurred with people who were on death row waiting execution. But there's another one. Looking ahead to uh, what we have coming up to us, John 19, verse 34. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. This was after Jesus had died, and the soldiers wanted to make sure before they brought him down. And don't forget, Jesus was elevated above him. So when the soldier thrust his spear, it would have been thrust upward into Jesus, and it released a flow of blood and water. And I used to think, well, the blood, yeah, that's easy to understand, but where do you get the water from? Well, interesting enough, it comes from something called pleural effusion. And again, this happens to somebody who's under extreme trauma. There are other reasons for this to occur, but this is one of them. And Eve spoke to us this morning how Jesus suffered severe trauma within less than a day of all this going on. He was beaten multiple times. He was scourged with whips so bad the flesh was stripped from his back. 
he suffered trauma. And when this happens, the sac around your lungs can start to fill with fluid. There's always a little bit of fluid there to help lubricate the lungs. But under extreme trauma, this amount of fluid grows and grows and grows. And it's very possible that when the soldier's spear pierced Jesus, it pierced that sack, and out came the water with the blood. Hidden pieces of science. They didn't know about then, but they can be explained today. And those pieces of science can help corroborate that the Bible is true and accurate. Concluding all this, is it possible that the Bible is not true? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, is it possible my jacket is blue? Well, yeah, it's possible, but is it reasonable to come to that conclusion? No, unless we're all colorblind and it's blue, but we see it as black and tan. Anything is possible, but is something reasonable? And I think it can be shown very definitely that the Bible is very reasonably true and accurate. And if it is accurate, given all the evidence we have that the Bible is true, then what do we do with Jesus? This is the question plaguing so many people. And this is such a stumbling block for them that they can't accept that into their knowledge bank, their mind, their brain. Because if this is true, then I better do something with Jesus. And I actually read in some of the secular writings that I was investigating, one guy actually said, if this is true, then I've got to figure out what to do with Jesus, and I don't want that. So I'll call up the uh, worship leader, leader and uh, the musicians, and we've got a closing hymn, and after which I'll uh, close in prayer. Just before Pilate asked those three words, what is truth? He is talking to Jesus, and Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Our response, Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. Inhale him as the matchless king to all eternity. Let's stand this.
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together in fellowship around you, in love with you, and in joyful adoration of what awaits us in eternity. Father, always help us to be mindful of those around us who don't have those same assurances. Help us in love, Lord, to know how to witness to them in such a way that they too can have that assurance of what will happen to them when they cross from this world to the next. Be with us as we leave these doors and go out into that mission field that we would be out there with love, with power, with strength, and with joy in our hearts knowing that we serve our risen and living King. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.